come on in. That's right. Front of the room, there's lots of space. Lots of room in the front. Okay, um, I'd like to get this session started. Uh, my name is William Uricchio. I'm a professor here at um, MIT in Comparative Media Studies, and along with Henry, one of the two directors of the program. Um, and actually, I'd just like to take a second to do something as, as much guilt as anything, but if you look in your program, there are three folks who've put this conference together, David Thorburn, myself, and Henry. Okay, uh, folks in the lobby were now started, so please come in. Uh, as I was saying, there were th three of us who uh, are listed as the organizers of this conference, but what you need to know is that two of us were on leave sabbatical in the Netherlands, David and myself, and that poor Henry was uh, running this show al alone. I mean, alone, there's a staff that helps, of course, Brad Sewell and some of our colleagues in CMS, but um, I just want to acknowledge Henry's uh, incredible contribution in actually pulling this together. So um, a hand is due. Henry, thanks. So this plenary session deals with copyright, fair use, and the cultural commons, and obviously addresses um, defining, enabling, and obviously constricting discourses for media practice, and therefore for our social lives and our political and economic systems. Legal and policy developments are obviously of vital importance to how we frame and enable practice, and they're all the more intriguing, interesting, and in a certain sense, flexible at moments of transition like the current one we are, we are inhabiting. The historical roots of, our current, of the current debate that we're having over, over intellectual property uh, protection are, are extraordinarily relevant and resonant. And I just want to reference uh, Lewis Hyde's um, discussion yesterday about the shifting intellectual property regime that Shakespeare lived through, a moment when the players owned the plays and finally Will himself was able to sign on. It's very relevant, that, that change. Um, if we go back to Britain and the, uh, or England and the 1710 Statute of Anne, um, which, after all, is the basis for what in the U.S. would become the, our constitutional pr uh, protection and the 1790 Copyright Act, something very profound and, again, resonant was at work. What the Statute of Anne did was shift protection from publishers who enjoyed royal monopolies and who enjoyed protection in perpetuity to, in fact, the creators for a very limited time, 21 years with 14-year extension. That's pretty significant in terms of where we are today. Um, as you might expect, this, this statute taking away power from the, from the industry, taking away protections in perpetuity towards, towards relatively uh, constrained time, provoked um, a rather robust re resistance on the part of the publishing industry. 
and a whole series of, of uh, court battles ensued. And there's one in particular that's kind of interesting, and it's on the eve of the American Revolution, kind of dwarfed in American cultural history by the American Revolution. It's a British case, the uh, 1774 Donaldson versus Beckett. And the case was about a number of things. What's the territorial reach of, of copyright protection? Uh, uh, um, but also, it was a contest about the publisher's attempts to reassert control over the creators and to go away from short-term protection back to in perpetuity. The publishers claimed common law protection, and this was a pretty significant case because the bench ruled that uh, the publishers' claims to, uh, to control intellectual property in perpetuity were not in the public's best interest. This was obviously picked up, as I already mentioned, by the US Constitution, and of course, echoing the Statute of Anne, our Constitution talks about protection, uh, copyright protection as promoting the progress of science and the useful arts by securing to their authors and inventors the exclusive right to their writings and discoveries. So what did this protection mean in the day of the horse and carriage, the day before the telegraph and the train? What kind of protection was afforded? And in, under US, the first, the first drafting of this in 1790, copyright protection was good for 14 years. At a time when it took probably a, you know, a couple of days to a week to go from Boston to New York, 14 years was the coverage allowed with a 14-year extension. So here we are in the day of the Sonny Bono case and Mickey Mouse and endless extensions and protections uh, 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 of copyright uh, protection. Clearly something is amiss. Bizarrely, paradoxically, the faster information circulates, the longer we are extending copyright protection. That seems totally at odds with, uh, with where our constitutional framers and the case law that they were based on in Britain uh, emerged from. So we're back to something that echoes this 18th century debate, back to a battle between creators' rights and the industry, back to a battle between notions of limited protections, temporally limited protections, and what seems like it's going to be in perpetuity once again if the Disney folks have their way. Um, in the context of the things we've been talking about this past uh, day or so, um, things like a network society, the blurring of producers and receivers, um, breakthroughs, technological breakthroughs that are giving us new affordances. Um, I just, uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, uh, Alcatel Lucent announced successful transmission of, of uh, 25.6 terabits per second, or as they said in their press release, 600 DVDs per second. That's a phenomenal development, and Hal knows lots more about it than I do, but um, it's setting the conditions for a new era of intellectual property. It's bringing back the kinds, I mean, I think it's, it's feeding the flames of the kind of debates we've been having over intellectual property. And I just wanted to put that in a broader historical perspective because it's so interesting that the, both the, 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 the terms of debate are, are really back with us. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce a really stellar panel to discuss some of these issues and actually a much broader range of them in terms of some of the contemporary uh, developments. Um, we're going to open actually with a, f with a film, but then we're going to go to, uh, which I'll talk about in a second, but then we'll turn to Wendy Gordon, who's on my right. Actually, I think I'm introducing the film. Oh, you're going to, that's right, sorry. Wendy's going to introduce the film, so we'll start with Wendy, who's professor of law at Boston University, Paul J. Lyko Scholar-in-Law, was CMS visiting scholar uh, a year or two back. Um, 
and whose, whose main interest is in bringing philosophical debates and economic theory to bear on copyright and the, common, the commons law debate. Uh, she's working on a new book that's really intriguing, um, To Burn or Not to Burn, Copyright and Ethics Pose the Question. And probably I think that's related to a course she's been developing with a, with a Shakespearean in terms of notions of rhetoric and framing and delivery and how legal issues are, are framed. Um, our next speaker will be Gordon Quinn from Kartemkin Films. He's uh, president and founding director. He's been in the business of documentary producing, directing, executive producing, and shooting for some 40 years, which is no mean feat in the documentary world. Um, he's probably best known for executive producing the film Hooped Dreams in 1994, um, but has done a ton of things, uh, the, the last Pullman car, a recent PBS uh, seven-hour series called The New Americans, and um, has just received uh, his uh, a MacArthur uh, Foundation Award for Creative and Effective Organization. So that's terrific news, and uh, congratulations. Our third speaker will be Hal Abelson, who's here at MIT as Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science. Hal is the driving force behind MIT's um, Open Courseware uh, initiative, which is a really wonderful a wonderful initiative uh, that is limping in some ways, at least as regards the use of media, because we have attorneys at this institution who are uh, selectively aggressive, and one of the areas they're not fighting a lot is to, is to give us the right to use audiovisual material online. But it's a terrific initiative, and we're dying to get into it, so um, I think Hal will later, later in this conference be talking about that. Um, he's founding director of Creative Commons, of Public Knowledge, of the Free Software Foundation, and he's a clarinet for MIT's, a clarinet player for MIT's Gilbert and Sullivan players. So like Wendy, Hal is someone who's really not just someone who thinks and talks about, not just a thought leader, but someone who's out there in the trenches making it happen. Um, same with Gordon, obviously. And our third, or sorry, our fourth speaker will be uh, Pat Alfterheide, who's professor at the School of Communications at American University and director of American University's Center for Social Media, which is something that Interesting organization focusing on media use for public knowledge and action, and it's involved in particular in documentaries and documenting uh, civil society issues, democracy, and the public media environment. And like our other three speakers, Pat is someone who makes it happen, who's in the trenches, who's not only grinding out books and articles, but is a public proponent, uh, a public intellectual in this sector. So with that, I will... Um, turn things over to Wendy, who will start us off. Can I stay here? Yes. I think that may be too tall for me. I think you can run it from the back. Yeah, I think you're Am on. I on? You're or on. Oh, thank you very much. All right. Basically, I'm introducing the film, which is about one of the best fair use projects that I've ever heard of, the Pat Alfreda and Peter Yazi have conducted. But just to give a little bit of background and a little bit of background that will help you see why what they're doing is an important model for each of you. Um, as Bill just said, copyright came into being, despite its label, as a set of liberties for the public as well as rights for the author. The three most important liberties which the Supreme Court has said in a patent context are uh, 
rights to copy and to use, which are just as important in the public as the right to exclude is for the copyright owner. The three most important liberties, the liberties to use ideas, the liberties to use facts, and the liberty to make a fair use of expression from prior people's work. Now, we all know that it's hard to use all of the liberties that the law gives because you need to have the physical, financial, and emotional wherewithal to use those liberties. You know that old line that the rich and the poor are equally free to sleep under bridges. Larry Lessig has sort of adapted the idea by saying uh, fair use is the right to hire a lawyer. <laughs> but you don't need necessarily to hire a lawyer in order to make, take some advantage of the liberties that copyright gives. Now, I, the, the moral of the story when we get to Pat and her, her film is going to be if you can form coalitions to state what you think fair use practices should be in your particular area of creative practice, you could get amazing deference from other players, people like the insurance industry, who you'd think would have no reason whatsoever to behave courageously, they never have before, but she's persuaded some to go along. Um, wait, I'm drifting from my main point. I'll, let me return for a moment. First of all, I just want to make clear what we're talking about when I talk about the need for coalitions, courage, and new customs. The danger is something called chilling effect. Our free speech guarantees are often not utilized to the fullest because it always seems so easy to choose the second best speech, the second best word, rather than get sued or arrested by saying exactly what you think or referencing and quoting exactly the person you want to. Chilling effect talks, is, is a kind of deterrence that happens when what gets deterred isn't just unlawful behavior, but behavior that's lawful, but that you don't do because you think it's, you're not giving up so much if you take a sidestep and you're afraid of the repercussions. How does one take advantage of fair use and try to take a stand against the possibility that one might, have, might eventually be sued? Well, one possibility, of course, is isolated courage. You know, the um, art history professor who wants to include some early drawings of the artist he's studying when the artist's heirs might refuse to give permission for that professor to go ahead and include the drawings in his book takes in uh, courage, an isolated kind of courage. Another thing that happens in some industries is a reciprocal agreement not to sue. Another possibility is to think about what happens in a prisoner's dilemma game and take the first cooperative move. What do I mean by that? Well, even if you have a large group, all of whom think that suing each other is the worst possible outcome, <coughs> unless you have some way of coordinating them, 
you might end up with everyone taking the <coughs> worst possible outcome to avoid being the only one who's cooperating. In prisoner's dilemma games, which attempt to set up similar dynamics, what they find is people opt to non-cooperate only over a certain period of time, but if they have iterated interactions, one cooperates and it can trigger cooperation among the rest. So you might think, I'll do a cooperative act. On my next article, book, movie, I'll put it in the public domain. So other people will put their things in the public domain and none of us will have to worry about copyright cutting off creativity again. Well, the problem, of course, with that is that there's always the possibility of a defector. And in an entire world of potential defectors, that is everybody but you, someone could take your public domain work, make a copyrightable change to it, stamp copyright on the copyrightable change, and then markedly reduce people's ability to do your work unless they can prove their chain of custody directly from you, not influenced by any of their additions. We all know that the GPL solves that, at least for software. That is, you're not putting your thing in the public domain. You're saying anyone can use my creation so long as they let anyone use their creation without a right of exclusion. All of these alternatives, that was a contractual alternative, then there's individual courage, then there's coalitions. What Pat and her group <coughs> have done is create a standard of what they think documentarians should be able to use under fair use principles. And that's caused two different things to happen. One, as she'll detail, is that insurance co companies, which are typically the ones who are most insistent that everybody get permission before proceeding, even insurance companies are willing to insure uses without permissions so long as they adhere to this statement of good practice. That's fantastic news. In addition, fair use judges look to the customs of various industries in deciding how much of a taking or what kinds of a taking should be fair. So that by the coalition uh, and the number of signatories adhering to the fair use statement, they not only affect other industry behaviors, but they could also affect the courts. One last um, bit of sort of proof about how powerful coalitions can be. It's a kind of an irony. In the most recent Yale Law Journal, you'll find an article by a guy named Jim Gibson. His argument is that because people in the creative industries, particularly documentary filmmakers and their insurers, are so risk averse, people are buying licenses everywhere where they don't really need to, where if they had relied on the fair use doctrine, the fair use doctrine would have sheltered them, but they don't. After a lot of people buy unnecessary licenses, and so then somebody comes along who tries to use individual courage and go forward without buying a license, and let's say they get sued. The court, in looking at the custom of the industry, sometimes and unfortunately will look at those existing licenses from other people and say, hmm, you should license too. 
In other words, you get a lather, rinse, repeat loop. <laughs> Risk aversion leads to licensing. More licensing leads to more judicial decisions against fair use. More judicial decisions against fair use leads to even more risk-averse behavior, and so on. There's lots of ways to break the loop. Um, Gibson discusses some in his article. But one of the things he didn't discuss was for the potentially risk-averse people, the documentary filmmakers themselves, to get together and take a stand on what they thought was fair. And ironically, in about the week between Gibson's article saying how documentary filmmakers are so incredibly threatened by this encroaching domain of risk aversion, we have, what is it, four insurance companies now who are willing to insure documentary filmmakers who refuse to get permission for every little bit. So there's been some real results. Pat told me that she and Peter Yazzi, the two souls behind this great effort, believe that it's possible to push back on the misinformation provided by large content providers. Misinformation that makes people believe that fair use really isn't there anymore. Pat and Peter want to begin the process of making fair use a normal part of the calculation anyone makes when they create something. And Pat says that that can work, and she's got the proof in the success of the documentarian project. The striking thing she said about our documentary best practices project is that documentarians too started with similar misconceptions that fair use was broken. But within 18 months, they actually saw industry practice change. I leave it to you now to fill in the details. Thank you. Okay, and we're going to take a look at a, about a seven-minute film. copyright law 
exist to assure that that access continues to be available. And it exists for another reason as well. Out of hand, copyright can become an instrument of censorship, not official censorship, but private censorship. And fair use is a safeguard against such misuse of copyright. People are just scared to use figures. I know that I was scared away from using it. You know, in my first film, I Am a Man, which also uses a lot of images from popular culture, taking a look at, you know, black masculinity. You know, lawyers, you know, would scare me and say, you know, you can't do, you know, fit, you know, this this does qualify for fair use, but I wouldn't use it if I were you. And that's really when I started acting so fair use does not exist. Because every time I tried to think it did, I would be, you know, surprised by some you know, incidental piece of music that seemed that the lawyers got worried about um, errors and omissions insurance people got concerned about, or a client got concerned about. Intimidation in the, in the clearance culture doesn't come in the form of a jackbooted thug knocking on your door. It comes in, it's, it's a way of looking at the material. It's, it's, it comes a lens through which you, you look at the, all of the elements of your story. Uh, everything becomes about, can I clear the rights for this particular image? Before even deciding whether it's worth using in the story, <laughs>
this this best practices statement? I, I, I we can agree with you. This is the beginning of a process. This this is a process now of, of education, of educating the insurance industries, the gatekeepers, the broadcasters, and producers. And we think that this document, uh, with that education, will become the gold standard for that perennial question which we get from filmmakers, is this fair use or do I have to license it? The great thing about having this statement is that we'll be able to distribute it online and obviously tell them to go to the Center for Social Media website so that filmmakers can educate themselves um, and therefore start making their work accordingly. I mean, for me, uh, the statement of best practice is something that is reasserting our democratic values and is a way for us to preserve and you know continue to use our own cultural history. So I'm up. Yeah. Is that right? You're on. Well, coming off what Wendy said, you know, I come out of the '60s. Uh, we were uh, fighting on the, you know, the forefront with around civil civil rights. We used to occupy buildings at universities, and if you look at our early films, which were about struggles and those kind of things. There's fair use all over it. We used it. We, we didn't have any, even 20 years ago, uh, the cat who dumps the uh, nail polish on the comment, you know, it's a critique. It's, we used it uh, and we broadcast it and we got it through uh, the broadcast, uh, you know, gatekeepers. And I found myself 20 years later telling people like Byron Hurt, who's in the film, boy, I don't know about this, uh, because I'd lost so many battles. You, you, you bring it into yourself. You know, the clearance culture is something that we, we it became our own kind of self-censorship. And two examples of that, when we did Hoop Dreams, when the family sings one of the boys' happy birthday, um, the theatrical releasing company insisted that we clear that song for $5,000. A few years later, or 10 years later, when we're making The New Americans, and a Mexican family is singing in Spanish, happy birthday, to that tune, I say, take it out. We can't afford it. You know, I don't want to fight that battle again. Um, at the end of The New Americans, there's this wonderful moment where one of the immigrants, a refugee, is riding in his car. He's whistling along to George Strait. Uh, he's he's uh, an African, and he looks out his window. He's just kind of, he's 
a happy guy, and a guy on a motorcycle pulls up and gives him a very hostile look, and they have this moment, their eyes meet, and then they look back away, and it's all sort of with the George Strait. It, we didn't make it happen. It's just happening. It's playing on the radio. We, we replaced George Strait with some music that we could afford to license. Um, these are both examples of fair use that we were self-censoring. So when I ran into Pat, who's an old, old friend at a film festival in Amsterdam, and she laid out this strategy of doing something about fair use, which wasn't going to court, which wasn't all legalistic, she said, this is something we can do. It resonated with my past. This is just telling me that I'm here. Um, and Don't you know that? <laughs> well, you know, not without the technology. You're never sure. <laughs> And it was, I just, it was like one of those moments. I saw, it, I saw the campaign at all. It was just in an instant. It was like, this is going to be fabulous. And it was. Um, we are finishing, we just finished a film in which we have a great deal of fair use claims about stem cell use. Um, we are getting E&O insurance for it. We know that the public television ITVS uh, series, Independent Lens, is going to broadcast it. And the, the the thing about the insurance companies that people have mentioned is tremendously important. But I think what is really important about the statement and the way that we did it was the incredible sense of empowerment that somebody came along and said, you don't have to go to someone else to do something about this. You don't have to go to the courts. You don't have to go to you know the the broadcasters and the insurance companies and you can define it yourself as a field as a group you're the you're the people who know what's right and wrong i'm on both sides of the issue i own rights and i use rights and there are certain kinds of rights in my film our films are extremely in, intimate with families and with people uh, and i i can give you one example of a situation in which somebody this was quite a few years ago, but we have a film from the 70s about an 11-year-old girl. And these people were making a film. It's just about her life and this 11-year-old girl uh, growing up. And some young filmmakers come to me, and they're making a film about Jane, an illegal, uh, an underground abortion service uh, in the 1960s and 70s that was providing abortions to women, uh, un you know, candlestainly. And I was like, they wanted to use some of the footage from our film to set the times. You see the girl on a picket line, she's protest, I think it had to do with the great boycott or something. You know, they wanted to use some image to set the cultural context of the time. And so I said, okay, but come back to me and show me how you use it, because I have to see it. And they come back to me and I'm horrified, because the implication from the way that they had edited the film, nothing that they said, but just the juxtaposition of shots, was that this 11-year-old girl had had an abortion. And I was like, wait, 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 you can't use that. That's a real person. And so you can see how I have concerns about how my material is used. Um, and there are other kinds of vehicles, I think, that are emerging to deal with that, creative commons and things like that. So I think that's all I really need to tell you, except that it was very, ex it's, well, it's an ongoing struggle. We're waiting for the other shoe to drop when the big rights holders come after us now, that we've been so successful. So I was so intimidated to be on this panel, surrounded by all of you, you creative people, and 
got Henry and David, Bill inviting me to talk in front of you know filmmakers. I don't know nothing. I'm just a, a poor computer nerd. I, I who hangs out in First Life. Um, but I wanted to. But I thought I'd want to make a little presentation of my own about the Academy. I was just struck here. Someone saying that the the documentary filmmakers are uh, afraid. Boy, you guys ain't seen nothing about afraid until you've seen the universities. So I want to do a little little presentation called Academy, use it or lose it, or uh, fair use it or lose it, because that's the message. I think right now, the academy, the very nature of what we call universities is under threat because we are too chicken to stand up for fair use. And I'm not gonna be very so philosophical. I can't make a real, real documentary. I can show a little bit of a newsreel. This is a news, this, this is a little bit of news, and not only is it news, it's just news of the week. So without a whole lot of comment or attempt to be philosophical, this is what fair use is like in the third week of April 2007. I'm going to start with myself. As I was putting this talk together, I got some email from, uh, from someone asking me, is it okay, can I fill out his publisher's permission form because he's writing a book and he would like to use the following sentence from my book in his book. Now, I'm not a lawyer, I don't know the bounds of fair use, but I actually think that using one sentence out of my 650-page book <laughs> ought to be okay for fair use. And I wrote back and told him that, and he sort of said thank you, and told me how bummed he was, because in, in that day he'd just been to a presentation by his university administration explaining how careful everybody has to be and how the university owns all sorts, all sorts of stuff and owns student theses and he's basically a programmer and how the university is about to start being really careful and cracking down on programmers putting patches into free software because they're worried about the provenance of that software. That's just me Friday. Let's go all the way back to uh, Tuesday. So I want to introduce you to Shelly. That's Shelly and her pigeon. Shelly's a uh, graduate student at, uh, at UMich, uh, and that's a strawberry daiquiri. It turns out that a paper came out about two weeks ago, a very interesting paper. Strawberries, as you might know, have nice antioxidant features, antioxidant properties, and they're sort of good for you. Somebody discovered that if you actually mix them with uh, ethanol, with alcohol, it actually increases the strawberries antioxidant properties, and then there were a whole bunch of things about, well, maybe strawberry daiquiris are actually a health food. And <laughs> Sherry, Shelley blogged about this in her blog. And in her blog, she included that. Well, not quite that, but an actual other graph that had whatever creative expression you have to express those eight numbers. This was Tuesday. Wednesday, she got that in the mail, explaining that she'd used a table and a paper from the journal and how this was copyright infringement and how she would have to get a license uh, from the Society of the Chemical Industry, SCI, where science meets business, or maybe they might want to call it where science is given the business. And a, little ad, a nice little ad at the bottom of the email to subscribe to the journal. Shelley, this is Tuesday, right? Tuesday, Shelley writes back to the, uh, the friendly intellectual property attorney who said, you know, you didn't have to threaten me. I'm willing to license it. And Tuesday gets back the answer. I'm sorry we can't license to, the, 
license it to you, it's very complicated, you have to contact Wiley Publishing. Now Shelley, besides being a graduate student and liking pigeons, is a blogger, and she's actually a pretty popular blogger on science blogs, so she publishes all of this in her blog. And by Wednesday, she gets a notice from uh, the director of publications of this, who of course says, well, you know, it's all a misunderstanding caused by a junior member of the staff. <laughs> no one has actually asked Sarah Cooney if SCI has the policy that junior attorneys are empowered to send out threatening letters on behalf of SCI, but we can, we can leave that going. Shelley calls this a victory. I'm not sure this is a victory. I'm not sure that agreeing that you get permission to do this and the place falls is a victory. Not only that, this is SCI. One of the interesting comments that came back on Wednesday was from somebody at Wiley who said, you know, SCI isn't the place that ought to be coming after you, it's Wiley. Wiley actually has a contract with the University of Michigan and we consider that stuff fair use. Wednesday. Okay. Let me turn to MIT. This is MIT's course management system called Stellar. It's not OpenCourseWare. I'll say something about OpenCourseWare in a minute. OpenCourseWare is the world. Stellar is where we put up information for our own students in our own classes. It's a great, great system. It's got lots of wonderful courses, and there's a really wonderful course in there in the, in the uh, literature department that mixes culture and science and the growth of the idea of probability. And there's Pascal, who's one of the, the founders of probability. And it's a lovely, lovely course. And for students who are in the course, it has some great materials. And you can go look at the materials online. And there they are. Uh, you can see they're restricted, like Aristotle and Pascal and Fermat and right? And I can go look at it, right? So I log in with my MIT ID. This is not public for the world. So I go and, and want to go look at uh, Pascal's Pensee. And up comes a little thing that says, I have to identify myself, because I have to identify myself as a member of the MIT community to get at this stuff. And up comes that. Guess what? This material is restricted to students who are in the class, and they get the ability to look at it for the duration of the semester. Now, Wendy's the lawyer. I actually would have thought that the term of copyright, even though it's getting longer, doesn't actually include Pascal's Pensee. It's the translation. It's the translation. Yes. So, right. So the answer is, and that's the point, there's a 1941 translation. Do we care enough to take care that the materials that we use in our classes are free enough? Because it turns out there actually are translations of Pascal that are not under copyright. Do we care enough to try and preserve the use of materials in the university community, or is it just something we're kind of letting go by the wayside? Why are we doing that? Well, news of the week. We go all the way back to Monday. This is a letter sent on the Association of Research Libraries mailing list by Deborah Jacobs at Duke explaining how Duke two weeks ago, got a threatening letter from uh, the Association of Publishers talking about how Duke is, uh, you can read it yourself, is infringing by putting stuff up on university reserve for its students. And they named the president and provost as defendants. And 
Deborah's sort of asking other, other, library, other library directors whether they've done that. So that's last week. This is the reality. Bill said I'd say something about MIT OpenCourseWare. Again, to show you a little bit more of the reality. That's MIT OpenCourseWare. I encourage you to take a look at it. Um, something of which MIT is and should be very, very proud. We're on our way to getting up all MIT courses next November, which will be 1,800 courses. We'll have a big celebration next, next uh, fall saying, hey, we did it. Uh, currently, there are about 1,450 courses up, about 850 of which contain third-party content. One of the things that we did, because we were scared when we put up OpenCourseWare, is we decided we would make no fair use claims at all. Because when we were putting this up, we felt it was risky enough. We didn't have to worry about uh, defending fair use stuff. So what OpenCourseWare does is a process where it goes through the material it gets from faculty and will, for example, get permissions. There's an example of getting permission. It'll sometimes take what's up on the internal course website and uh, say, I'm sorry. We can't. The tremendous amount of creative expression in that graph you see up there <laughs> is not something that we could tolerate putting up from MIT for the world because we're afraid someone would come after us. And sometimes, when we can't do that, we redraw it. So that wonderful figure is redrawn by, by some people who MIT, some people in Bangalore. And OpenCourseWare goes through this process with everything. And we try to be very, very careful about not relying on fair use. And the cost of that, well, takes about 80 hours to produce a entire course website on MIT OpenCourseWare, about a third, about 40% of which are pure friction. Right? It's not about publishing stuff, it's not about creating stuff, it is simply the friction of not being brave enough to claim fair use on this. So, a little bit of a summary. We can think about the university and we can think about a fence between world accessible and restricted to within the institution. And maintaining that fence and worrying about it and not being brave enough to push stuff out of the university can be expensive. What can we do? We can start using open content. We can use stuff that are under Creative Commons licenses and taking a page from the filmmakers, we can be more aggressive about fair use. We can start making the, exactly the kinds of practices that Pat is showing us in her film and talking about that Pat and Peter Yazzie have been doing. But there's another point that's even more worrisome and that we are more afraid of, and that there's another fence. There's a fence about not even thinking about the university, thinking about the particular students in the course for that semester. And we're being chicken there too. We are saying we're going to take that fence and move it all the way in so there's stuff we can't even risk would be within the boundaries of MIT. And what's that doing? That's destroying the university as an intellectual community. I don't know any other way to say it. It's saying there's a bunch of isolated classes and isolated students and the stuff from which we make our education, there's just no community there. And what can we do? We can start worrying about it, and I think we really need to worry about it. And again, we can use open content and be more aggressive about fair use. So that's just a newsread. That's not meant to be philosophical like Wendy or historical. That's just uh, last week in the trenches in fair use 
in the university community. Thank you. So I'd like to believe that in, in two years, health situation is remarkably different because of, this, of the model that we've been working on of establishing codes of practice that can really be highly influential and change practice. The motto that I learned from Peter Yassi in this project was practice makes practice. And uh, it, I think that neither Peter nor I, when we began uh, taking the responsibility of uh, coordinating this effort, which is not, the effort was not taken by us, actually. We coordinated it, but the effort was taken by all the filmmakers, the film organizations, and the, um, the first out-of-the-box gatekeepers who made the real difference. I want to point out that Simon Kilmurray, the kind of mousy-looking guy from POV in the film, who said, well, we, we really hope that this is going to be the standard, uh, is um, a secret tiger in this, and is the person who is most uh, has, has played a quiet uh, interface role with the insurance companies for the last 18 months to produce the astounding um, uh, uh, fact that four out of the seven you know, insurers in this country now accept fair use claims. So it's all of those people who, empowered by the fact that they had a common standards statement, used it, were the first people to actually courageously take a step out and use it. Who, who really made the difference. They, they practiced what they saw there and they, they have changed practice. It's that model that um, we tried to figure out where do we go next with. How do you, how do you apply that model? Um, we, uh, as people who live in a university, are concerned by exactly the issues that Hal Abelson just talked about. We're also, con we're also concerned about something else which is that the practices that documentary filmmakers have been practicing for the 40, these last 40 years are now becoming the domain of every single person, as, uh, as uh, Henry Jenkins has been telling you for about 20 years. And, um, and what, we're, what we could call participatory culture uh, means that the issues that documentary filmmakers have been facing about constriction of creativity are now questions of free speech for the entire society. How do you get a handle on the problem of changing practice when it is such a diffuse problem. Uh, we uh, were delighted to be supported by the MacArthur Foundation for a project that is being uh, led by Peter Yassi, Renee Hobbs at Temple University, and myself to create a, uh, a statement, a code of practice for media literacy practitioners. We chose this field because it is both an established field and an emerging field. Media literacy used to mean helping people understand how to critique, understand, and analyze mass culture. What media literacy now means, and once again, I'm telling you something that Henry Jenkins has been saying loud and clear for some time. Uh, it, media literacy now means how to help people in participatory culture make the best, most exciting material and most creative intervention that they can in, in, in social expression. Uh, we believe that media literacy teachers, practitioners, makers are, are people who we can find in this diffuse universe, who have professional associations, who work within institutions, who therefore have the capacity to become a coalition 
and establish what they mean by best practices and be able to uh, do within a wider sphere and hopefully within a sphere that uh, can directly affect the possibilities for, for MIT open courseware to be able to set some standards. We just completed a short three-minute film that's intended as uh, a discussion, um, it's, a, it's a discussion trigger to help people in that community discuss what they think are appropriate standards in emerging participatory culture. So I'd like to take a look at remix culture, the early years. Oh, right. 
to tell you that uh, we're beginning the brainstorming process uh, on what problems are for media literacy professionals uh, in, uh, in doing media literacy for a participatory age immediately following this panel at our workshop called uh, DIY Copyright Reform. So we would welcome any of you who think that this is an interesting topic to follow up. I finally wanted to say that we are, uh, uh, we also at the Center for Social Media recently two weeks ago finished a study called The Good, the Bad, and the Confusing, which uh, provides a, a, some, some uh, very thin but interesting data about the copyright attitudes of young people making online videos. And that is also on our website, social, uh, centerforsocialmedia.org. We also have a few copies here as you leave, along with many more copies of the Statement of Best Practices and Fair Use, which I commend you to because I surely do not want to take them home. Well, terrific. Um, do you, are there any comments uh, among yourselves that you'd like to have before we pass it over to the audience? There's too much controversy among us. I could tell. <laughs> no, this was a pretty pre-cooked uh, session, and rightly so, because it's such a crucial issue and has, has a number of entry points. I just want to also say that, I mean, we've been using words a lot like collective intelligence, Pierre Levy's term, or uh, collaborative communities, and this kind of work that we're seeing here gives that another dimension. It's not so much the sort of, the sort of network culture. It is network culture, but in a, in, a, in a more embodied and robust way. And there's another C word that really um, is, is, is evident here, and that's the word courage. Um, and I just want to thank all of you for, for what you're doing, because we are all the beneficiaries. When foundations can give some support, when broadcasters can sort of think along with it, when universities dare to, to stand up, um, and of course, when folks like you take the lead, it's really terrific. So thank you very much. So folks with questions, come on up uh, to the mics. And uh, our first question. Um, well, I have an invitation and then a question. Uh, I'm Lewis Hyde. I teach at Kenyon College. But in the spring and the summer, I'm here in Cambridge at the Berkman Center. And I have been trying to, inspired by uh, these projects, gear up to do a best practices and fair use for classroom teachers in universities and colleges. Uh, I come out of an English department, so I'm particularly interested in the humanities and modern languages. So if anybody in this audience would like to have a free lunch at the Berkman Center, uh, my email is hyde at, dot, hyde at kenyan.edu. Send me a note, and I'd like to try to find collaborators in the Boston area who would uh, like to work on a project like this. Um, my question, or a comment which I'll try to turn into a question, we've been having some discussion at Berkman about the RIAA's recent bullying activities. And one nice line that Wendy Seltzer came up with is to encourage university councils to take the university's mission statement as their client rather than the university's risk-averse portfolio. Um, any ideas on how one could get the university's council to begin to think differently of their role? You know, from our experience, because I think it's important to understand, it's like we argued this for years with broadcasters and with insurance companies. 
and we got nowhere. They, didn't, they wouldn't even, you know, you were just unprofessional. That was really, if you brought this up, you were unprofessional. What made the difference is we went in as a whole group, and universities are full of groups of people. You've got to organize the students, the campus. They'll be happy to go with you in a great big group, maybe make some signs, and they fold like that. Any other? Because, I mean, I, I know our attorneys here at MIT are a mixed bag. I mean, on the one hand, they can be terrific allies in the sense of trying to protect uh, the works of, uh, the, there's a set of principles, and I must say I'm very impressed by, we've just done a contract with, uh, with um, the National Research Foundation and the Media Development Authority in Singapore, and the, the underlying principles for that discussion were wonderful. Anything we have that might change <coughs> computer language, to say it uh, in an in a improper way, is per se open. That's MIT stand, and that was terrific to see. On the other hand, when it comes to time to put our our, our film or television material into the open courseware space, we have a much harder time. I mean, they take a quite different stance, so I don't know. Right. You know, we, um, uh, we did not face, uh, it, I don't think it's exactly uh, the same kind of situation, but what, um, when we were developing this project, many filmmakers said, don't talk to us, talk to the broadcasters, talk to the e &L people. Right. Uh, they're the people who are causing us the problems. And what we said is those people are actually pretty happy. They have no reason to change at all. Um, they're happy to settle for second best. They don't care if they ever see first. Um, what they're, they're, and their argument is not that they want second best. Um, it's, it's just it costs them extra to get to first because of perceived risk. What we have to do is lower their perceived risk by giving them a tool. Uh, so what we what the filmmakers were able to do by uh, getting together was to develop a tool that actively helped the gatekeepers. And uh, some gatekeepers found that to be more useful than others. Um, Discovery has not found it to be useful because they actually really don't care. Um, PBS really has found it to be useful because PBS actually has an investment in first uh, highest quality. And um, Discovery is going to be the fifth or sixth adopter when they realize that they can save more money. Um, but the people that we stayed away from uh, were the content industry people because they had no interest in acknowledging that fair use exists. But confronted with clarity about the interpretation, were unable to continue to deceive and misinform people about utility of fair use. And when I take the, the situation of universities, I look to the people with the greatest investment in highest quality and freedom of expression, and those people really are the professoria. So I think that that's where the first steps are to create um, tools for knowledge and tools of awareness in, um, in any of these struggles to change practice. Um, I think that's a good segue. Um, I'm Jason Mattel, and I'm uh, working with Peter Cherney. Peter, are you here? Over there, and John Belton, um, with the Public Policy Committee of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. And uh, if you're a member of SCMS, you may have gotten a survey a couple of months ago um, about this question of fair use practices. And we're right now in the process of um, 
putting together the final draft of a best practices in teaching for film and media educators that will serve, you know, based on the model that Pat and Peter did. We've been working with Peter and some of his law students to draft this, and um, we hope to have it available on SCMS's website this summer. It has to sort of work through the, the system. Um, and next up, we will be doing a statement of best practices for publishing and presentation in film and media studies. And we're focusing on film and media specifically because uh, that's where the, one of the places certainly where the content industries have been most uh, aggressive um, and uh, it's our, our field of study. But we welcome any sort of feedback or um, participation in this process as we move forward. If you can contact either Peter or I or go to SCMS's website uh, this summer and, and see what's up there. And we hope to have a, a real resource center that's available for this. And then we'll start the process of having the, all the university lawyers, the librarians, the um, content industries see this as a document that's, that is a sort of standing uh, practice for what the field believes in and what we do, and then all of you who are educators to implement that in your own practices. So um, we thank uh, Pat and Peter for setting this model in practice, and we hope that it will uh, change all the presses that Hal talked about uh, in the coming years. I, I, I'm so excited to see the SCMS initiative, and I just want to take this opportunity to point out that uh, many, many uh, 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 initiatives around fair use are taking place. I was so excited to see fair use be um, said, said out loud at this conference so many times. Dance, uh, <laughs> the dance community has uh, actually received a recent grant from the Mellon Foundation to create a code of practice around fair use in dance materials. I had no idea dancers even had these issues. Art educators similarly are developing a, a, a code of practices around fair use, and uh, Canadians are getting very active around fair dealing, and doc filmmakers recently organized uh, to create such a similar statement. So the notion of creating standards documents that uh, can establish practice is, is really spreading. It's very exciting. Uh, my name is Peter Walsh. Uh, about 10 years ago, I did research on the history of intellectual property. And I came to three conclusions. First of all, that intellectual property was created almost entirely by abstractions. The, secondly, that the definition was extremely unstable and constantly changing. And third, that um, copyright law was, was developed, or intellectual property law was developed primarily to trade uh, limited monopolies in return for social control of the implications of technology. And my question, I guess, to the panel would be, are we, what we're seeing now with the Millennium Copyright Act and um, all the things of controlling the recent um, developments in technology, yet the, the next stage in the process of controlling the social implications of technology and communication? I'm not sure I fully understood your last point, which was your key point. But it sounds like you're asking whether things like the DMCA were lobbied for by people who actually wanted to control society. My impression is that what their real goal was was cash, and that controlling society just sort of happened. I would say, I, would say I, I wasn't, not so much the control of society, but the control of the, the social implications of technology. 
So you create an internet and there's communication everywhere. And anybody can be a newspaper, anyone can express an opinion. And then you get the pulling back from that of attempting to control what people put on websites via copyright in order to control property, in order to control reputations, um, um, uh, and, and in order to control the flow of cash. So that there's, there's an attempt always, whenever a technology is introduced, to pull back using intellectual property rules to create that. And it starts with the printing press, so that the printing press opens up literacy, uh, new discussion of religion, and then copyright law comes in after that to control the social implications of that. I'd only say that what you're giving us is a comment, of course, rather than a question. Well, my question and is- And it would be, it would be easier to deal with and more informative if you filled in the blanks of the pronouns. I'm having trouble understanding who's doing what to whom. But that's just a suggestion because I don't want to get into a debate that I don't understand the terms of. Okay. Uh, would you like me to fill in or I, go on? I think given time, perhaps okay. not, but. Hi. Um, I just wanted to thank you for the work that you're doing and, and um, to let you know of, of uh, something that, that you've inspired uh, some, of, some of us to do as, as well. Uh, what, what it, we started at, I'm, I'm at Emerson College in Boston, and we started creating a, um, a, a sort of, you know, Emerson YouTube. As it, as it turns out, so was everybody else. And so what we did just last Thursday, actually, is we got a bunch of people together at the Berkman Center, in fact, and, and uh, we had the first of what will be many meetings, I think, in establishing kind of common technological specs for these sorts of open systems, hopefully, um, that will be used in, in colleges and universities. And we coupled that with the, with, um, with the beginning of a drafting of, of best practices, again, for, for fair use, a statement of principle for fair use, in adopting these kinds of systems. But we see them in, in, as kind of hand in glove, that that in, in uh, building the technologies, making open source technologies that colleges and universities can use, coupled with a kind of um, statement of principles that, that they will be using them within. Um, and, and so we hope, to, we hope that, that this, this effort is, doesn't remain within, within specific disciplines, but that we can, we can you know, sort of broaden it out a little bit. Um, and, and create a, and create something that that will that will apply across disciplines because I think it, it can I think you know what a history teacher is doing is the same as what uh, someone from media studies is doing um, and so so I, I you know that, that that's kind of our that's kind of our hope and and we are going to have uh, um, you know just to um, maybe you can get in touch with this group we are going to have a, a second meeting at the Internet and Society conference at Harvard on June 1st we've had a we have a a whole sort of session plan to, to build this out and hopefully to unveil some of our some of some of an early draft of, of what we've accomplished. But I thought maybe you, if, if someone could speak to the idea of perhaps attaching these best practices to technologies, as well as um, perhaps uh, applying them across discipline, disciplinary um, boundaries. In uh, in a very limited way, we've been excited to see that Rever uh, refers users to the statement of best practices. Uh, the, of documentary filmmakers, and uh, I, I think that what you're doing is very exciting. Uh, Kurt Lancaster, Fort Lewis College, Durango, Colorado. Um, our department's putting together a web magazine which will include 
multimedia projects, and um, and we met with the college lawyer last week, and you just imagine what that was like. And um, my question is, can the best practices for filmmakers be applied for new media content for the web? You know, uh, the, the film you just saw, Remix, this is a, uh, we actually recently had a meeting, which I'd love to uh, have you guys take a look at the Rapporteur's report of. It's, it's, it was just published to our website of online video providers. Um, and uh, they have a variety of reasons why, um, uh, why some of them are reluctant to give advice, even though some of them, as you see with Rever, are not. But the remix culture video you just saw, it's uh, right now, you can't really say what, which of those practices uh, you would call fair use because we haven't had the discussion yet about it. If it were left up to the online video providers or, or their surrogates to write it right now, I'd be a little afraid to, to see what they would write. Um, and and my, my big push is, is, and I'm sure you know, we're in concert here in this room about, is to preserve uh, open spaces of experiment even for work that may not involve fair use so that we can find out what emerging creative practices really are. Let me just say a bit of tedious legal doctrine. Um, the reason why presumably MIT shrinks the number of people who can look at the things online just to the people in the class is that fair use is such a fact-flexible doctrine that one of the things the courts will look at is likelihood that this particular copy will spread, likelihood it'll cause harm. So something that might be fair use in one context, let's say a documentary film that's not digitized or at least not available in uh, generally in digital form, might be different than something that's placed on the web that everyone can download. So it's a little bit um, hazardous to jump from one area to the other. And in fact, the effort mentioned by the gentleman a few minutes ago about cross-disciplinary work, um, that's very exciting, and it's one of the reasons we have general rules on copyright, like ideas and facts are always free to the extent the courts listen to the policies. Um, and fair use may not be the best place for general practices. Um, I think that the documentary filmmaker project is succeeding in part because it is looking carefully at a particular discipline. Yeah, I'm Virginia Waxman. I'm a film scholar, and I have a comment and a question. And the comment is just to um, remember some of the history of our efforts to open up fair use to some people who are in this room. Um, in 1984, as some of you know, Kristen Thompson put together um, a statement of best practices for media scholars that was published in Cinema Journal, uh, and it had a tremendous effect on the publishers. They, find, they had something to hold on to that, that would that they felt would be some kind of a protection in, if, if a lawsuit ever came along. And so it really opened up the opportunities for film scholars to publish um, stills and frame enlargements in particular um, as part of scholarly uh, publishing. Um, I'm very glad to see that SCMS has taken this issue up again uh, because all kinds of new uh, dimensions of it 
uh, are coming to the fore now with the, with the World Wide Web um, and the prominence of that. So um, I, I, I want to reassure you that it does help scholars as well as um, documentary filmmakers. But I also um, want to remind us that in, in the film studies community, people have generally taken the attitude of don't ask, don't tell, because if you ask the studios, they will say no. They will say there is no, many times, they will say there is no fair use, we own all the rights, and we are either not going to allow you to publish, or we are going to charge you an exorbitant amount of money, $50,000, for example, that you never will be able to pay. So. Um, these kinds of, of chilling effects do affect the publisher so that, for example, in the case of Cinema Journal, uh, a scholar who was not informed uh, asked Columbia Pictures several years ago if he could publish some images from a, a film of theirs in an article, and they said, no, you cannot publish them, and you cannot publish any images from any Columbia Pictures movie in Cinema Journal ever. Um, and the press, Tex University of Texas Press now, cannot publish, they feel they cannot publish any uh, images from Columbia Pictures. And that is the kind of chilling effect uh, that, that can happen. My question is um, uh, it, regarding the recent decision of Paramount Pictures to pull all their content off of YouTube um, and to, uh, uh, to claim the right to do that. I, I wonder if any of you have any reactions to that um, decision. I just wanted to, to say something to just what you said just before that, though, about don't ask, don't tell. Because certainly that's what we as documentary filmmakers did for many years. A lot of stuff went through. We often said, oh, we said to the insurance company, yeah, yeah, I have the rights, and, you know, and, and nothing ever happened. Yeah. But what I think is important is that is not a solution. No. And this kind of bottom-up struggle is. And so when you, it, you're in a very different position if you sort of, one of the things that I keep being told, and actually, actually Peter has told me this, you don't weaken your case by asking. If it's fair use, it's fair use. And if somebody uh -huh. has said no to you, that doesn't weaken your case. Because well, the publishers will say, if you ask, yes. it means that you didn't think it was fair use. The Supreme and it, it, Court has actually gone on record as saying that logic won't fly anymore. Okay. Right. That, but I, I think the key is there, and it's, it's central to our struggle. It's why we have presented at, you know, this, uh, the Society for Cinema Studies. We presented at Pat's been at all of them. Because the people who teach have to be re-educated and the lawyers have to be re-educated about what it actually says in the law. And once you have, that, it's, it's, that's what makes this a bottom-up kind of education process. Regarding the Paramount stuff, I mean, an encouraging sign is the BBC's decision to post a lot of their material on YouTube. Ina has made, the French uh, television archive has just made hundreds of thousands of hours available online. So there, at least with some, granted this comes from public service broadcasting, but there are moves afoot in Europe at least to put huge amounts of stuff online. And that may also help to um, put this into perspective for some of the more retentive American-based uh, studios. <laughs> Hi, um, Tongur Sezen, Istanbul University, Turkey. Um, I have a comment much more than a question. Um, in Turkey, 
Uh, until recent years, we don't have a copyright culture, and in the last five, four years, people are discussing what copyright is and what can we do, what we can't we do, can we cannot do, and I think uh, this kind of document uh, can help actually uh, to create uh, a copyright culture in countries like mine, because this shows what we can do and what uh, and uh, the other things we can't do, and. Uh, this would help us uh, from the other direction, actually, not breaking the copyright, but creating the copyright. And, uh, and I have a question. If uh, I may, as a participant of, as a representative of Istanbul University, would like to uh, publish it in Turkish, in Turkey, if possible, uh, to teach uh, that, that um, ideas. Thank you. This, this document can be reprinted by anybody uh, for, um, in its entirety, and if you would like to quote from it, please use fair use. <laughs> these, are, these are, of course, encouraging and exciting uh, uh, developments, and, and, and just the incitement to be um, more courageous in your, uh, and, and, and less uneasy in your, in your own dealings with universities and publishers is a very helpful thing, and I'm sure all of us can benefit from it. But I, I, I feel a little guilty about sort of uh, being melancholy about this, but I have two questions that I think are uh, undermine my joy over this news. And the first is, uh, isn't it still the case that uh, these gestures in, are very important and should be extended, but it doesn't change the sort of fundamental definition of copyright that perhaps is problematic. That is to say, in some sense, it may even reinforce assumptions about what is capable of ownership and what is not that we might want to question. And I, I, I wonder whether the panel could comment on that. And then my second question is a related matter. And perhaps Wendy especially can help us with this, but perhaps all of you could comment. That has to do with my understanding, which is not a uh, rigorous legal one at all, about the idea that copyright uh, uh, extends uh, 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 without uniformity in, in, uh, in, in different ways over materials in print as against visual materials. And the control of visual information, uh, my understanding is, uh, at least on the part of uh, um, uh, uh, the corporations is incredibly more aggressive than the control of printed materials. Is this a healthy situation? Is there really a legal basis for it? If there is, shouldn't we be challenging that legal basis? I can give a doctrinal answer. I feel so, so staid and, and plaid. Um, speaking like a lawyer. Um, first of all, um, in terms of industry practice, I'm not sure I can say what is or is not um, more extreme. In terms of the way the law works, uh, there have been some very good fair use cases for visuals, like in the Billy, Bill Graham, excuse me, Bill Graham archives case recently. Somebody who was writing a biography of the Grateful Dead used a lot of images from the 60s in very small concert posters and tickets, and they were sued, and it was said to be fair use. Um, there are spe some special provisions of various kinds. For example, when architecture was given copyright protection, Congress also stated that anyone who wants to take a photograph 
of our copyrighted architecture as part of doing a cityscape can do so without even needing fair use. Um, so that there are some um, special exemptions that help in special situations. But as far as fair use itself goes, I'm not sure I see any big difference among the cases in the way visual versus musical, et cetera, is handled, with one exception. There's one totally bizarre case in which a court used a provision which was supposed to limit the rights of sound recording copyright holders to broaden the rights of sound recording copyright holders and basically said, anytime you sample a sound recording, that is, take the actual yeah. drum riff or vocal, um, that's automatically actionable. And the case is outrageous enough that in that circuit, they may have virtually destroyed fair use for that category. But th hopefully that court will soon see the error of its ways. Yeah, I, I just want to say something about the question of questioning all of, of copyright, because I think that two, two things. One, okay, I am a copyright holder, and I have certain concern. I expressed that earlier. But I think there's another important aspect of what we are doing with this, uh, you know, best practices document and what other people need to do, which is I'm making films now. I'm making films today. So I can't wait for the law to change. I wait, can't wait for it till we have a better thing. We have to, like, participate in the need of our democratic society to do all these things that documentary filmmakers do and the dialogue that they can create within the public. What I think is critical about the way we went about this is that this is a statement of best practices and fair use that was created by our field sort of now. Ten years ago, ten years from now, we may have to do it again or, you know, recreate it or restate where we, what we think it is. But I think that process is a healthy check on always looking to the courts or rewriting the law and that kind of thing, which may be necessary. I'm not saying it isn't something that needs to, may need to be addressed. But I think we need a mechanism as people are exploring the internet, as things are happening, to be able to say, we as a community, and the key is to understanding who your community is, who your field is, have something that we can do right now to stand up and say we're going to assert our rights. There was a, uh, a really interesting conference uh, called Comedies of Fair Use um, last year in New York. And uh, Judge Kaczynski, who is? Ninth Circuit. Ninth Circuit. Um, uh, appeals Court? Justice. Justice. Um, I'm sorry, I'm so not the lawyer. Um, <laughs> was the last speaker. And so he um, summarized his understanding. And he said, you know, I, I really do not believe that copyright is broken. I believe that practice is broken. And copyright provides a set of balancing provisions for ownership, and it limits ownership. But if people want those provisions to work, they have to use them. Common law is enormously flexible. Common law permits adaptations for new habits, new technologies, uh, new beliefs. But people have to use their rights. With those words, I'm afraid we're at time. So I would ask you two guys to come up and ask your questions in person. But on those inspiring words, let me thank the panel very much. Pat, thanks very much for
Sorry, we hit the we hit the second I don't know what I did with my. Can I just have one? Oh, no. You. And you know what? We made 20,000. So I found it. It's on the website, too. It's 